Hey, how you guys doing? <clears throat> Good. There's a little girl came into the kids wing and she said on her way to church, she goes, guy, I'm just so excited to go to church. I get to learn about Jesus and have so much fun. And I'm like, that is just excellent. She even got the priorities straight, you know? It's like, guy, they're gonna give us so much candy and we're gonna have so much fun. And I think we talk about Jesus. So There's like, no, we talk about Jesus and we have so much fun. Like, that is so cool. That was not my church experience growing up. So I'm really happy that that's, I'm really happy kids want to be here. What a stinking joy that is, huh? So Jesus, we're so thankful for this church body that is just so embracing the joy of being a believer that we have people who are excited to be joyful, kind, and hopeful to little kids so that they would think about Jesus and think about church as a place where they find joy and they find love and, and they get hope and they get to learn about their Savior, their God, their King who would do anything for them, even give of his own life. And so Jesus, we pray for the kids who are in the kids' wing tonight and the kids who are in the middle school group tonight and the kids who will be meeting in the high school group tomorrow, Lord, we just pray that our ceiling would become their floor, that they would just become amazing leaders in the faith, that they would become people who are just outspoken. They're not lukewarm. They are people who are just on fire for Jesus. And Jesus, as we look into your word tonight, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that as we look into your word, we would have an encounter with the living God as you, um, through your Holy Spirit, are just would speak to us through your word, Lord. So thank you for this evening. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this church body. We're so lucky to get to be here. No one has it better than us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. So we're going to be continuing 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Second Corinthians chapter two starts with the word for. So I just want to back up a little bit, get just a tiny bit of context to continue through the thought. So we'll look at Second Corinthians 1.23 going into chapter two. So Second Corinthians 1.23 says, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I caused you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I've pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So Paul has come back. He wrote the first letter. There's some serious issues going on at church. He writes the first letter, which is probably the second letter. And then there's another letter and a really difficult visit that happens. And what Paul is talking about, this visit was really, really rough. There was some major issues going on in the church. He writes some letters. They're not getting corrected. So Paul goes to be there. And he's got the best intentions in mind. 
we're going to figure this out. We're, we all want the same thing. We all serve King Jesus. We're all going to end up in the same place together. We love one another. Uh, there's some things that you're doing that we need to not do. There's some things you're not doing that we need to do. There are certain behaviors that are coming from your culture that are just not congruent with the life of a believer. So we need to not do those things anymore. There's some disorder going on in how you praise and how you worship. So we're just going to stop doing certain things. We'll start doing certain things. And, and it's going to be great. I mean, we're going it, to, it's all going to go really well. This is simple. I'm going to fix it. And that meeting went really, really poorly. That the church just was not accepting of Paul when he came to do this thing. When I moved down to San Diego, I worked at a church down there called Horizon. And then I ended up driving back up and came to Grants Pass, came home. And it's a 13-hour drive from San Diego to Grants Pass. At that age, I made it in about 10. So this is what it is, younger, took more risks, was braver. And so I got home way before I was supposed to, and my parents weren't home when I went to my mom and dad's house. And so I come inside, and no one's there, and I just decide, you know, I love my mom and dad. They've, they've done so much for me. They, I, I'm so excited to see them. I would love the opportunity to bless them. So I start looking at what could I do that would help my mom and my dad out. And I look outside, and for the entirety of the time that my parents have lived at this house, the blackberry bushes have just been an infestation. We're from San Diego, so we didn't understand this. This is a, these are vile beasts that you must fight every year or they take over, right? So they're in the, the back corner, and my dad fights them every year. And I look, and, and you know, they're, they're about, it's a moderate amount in the back corner. And I think, that's what I'll do. I'll help my dad out. So I go um, into my dad's shop. I find his machete. So now I'm a young man, unsupervised with a sword at my parents' house. Totally good. And I come outside to the, the, the little deck. And I'm thinking, I'm going to go get those blackberry bushes. But then I see, oh my goodness, there's blackberry bushes right next to my parents' house, right underneath my old bedroom window even. And I'm just sitting there thinking, I had no idea I was the glue keeping this whole operation together. And with me being gone, it's just falling apart over here. So I'm lucky I'm back. I'm going to help my parents out. So I come down the stairs and I just start hacking at these blackberry bushes. And I mean, going at it. I've got, I get scraped up on my arms, my face. I'm hitting the dirt because you got to get the roots out. And I'm destroying these things. I did everything but salt the earth to make sure they wouldn't come back, right? They're gone. And so I'm hacking at them. Right as I'm about to finish up, I'm thinking, okay, I'll go, I'll go get the ones in the corner now. Then, but I hear someone come down the driveway. I'm like, okay, my mom's home. I should probably give her the opportunity to say how much she appreciates me because that was pretty amazing what I just did. You're welcome. So, all right. So I come inside and uh, she goes, oh, you're home. And I go, yeah, I, I just figured, you know, I got here a little early, so I'll do something to bless you. you, you know, you're welcome. Oh, yeah, I just went was killing some blackberry bushes. She goes, oh, it's great. Your dad will be stoked. I go, I know. I can't believe you guys let them get up so close to the house, though. She goes, oh, I mean, I get, they're not that close. And I'm like, they're right up next to the house. It's under my bedroom window. And she's just kind of looking at me. And I'm looking at her. And she's not really saying anything. And I'm like, yeah, so I just, you know, cut them up. They're, they're gone now. And she's still just looking at me. And she goes, there's no blackberry bushes next to the house. I go, I promise there are. Well, there's not anymore. You're totally right. There are no blackberry bushes next to the house. And my mom just says, did you kill my raspberries? 
And what's really awesome is raspberries take three years to bear fruit. This was supposedly the third year, which means they were planted before I went down to San Diego. <laughs> I just didn't know. I had the best intentions. Hey, I'm going to help. This is going to be great. You're welcome. And uh, at, she just didn't receive it the right way, you know? <laughs> So Paul had hoped that when he was at this church, some of the problems that I've written about the first letter, we're going to fix it, we're going to figure it out. Things are going to go so much better. But instead of welcoming him, instead of embracing him as an apostle and as the church leader, they resented his intrusion. Hey, this is how we do church. We like what we do. We're, this is just who we are. Some of them even went as far as to criticized the way that he spoke, even to mock his appearance. Um, the, the world of Corinth and how they did life and what they thought was acceptable and how they talked to one another and the way that they engaged with one another and the world, the new world of the Christian, they had fused in this church and Paul had come to unstuck them. And that process of unsticking those two worlds was really painful for everyone involved. It was painful for Paul, and it was painful for the Corinthians. And so Paul writes the reason that he had done that in verse 4, for I wrote to you out of so much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Hey, I did this and I wrote to you not out of, out of a power trip, not because my way or the highway. I did this because this is what's right for you. It's because I love you that I want to correct you. And, and in my correction, if you lead this out well, you're going to do better. Correction can sometimes be super hard. Like if you have a friend that you, you see them and they're, they're engaging in things or they're talking to their spouse in a way, or it, it can sometimes be really daunting and frightening to try to offer up correction. But the Bible tells us faithful are the wounds of a friend because it's a really good friend who's gonna tell you the stuff you don't wanna hear. They tell you, man, I don't know about that. I think maybe we should rethink that. I think maybe we should look at that. True friends will tell you when you're messing up, when you're falling short, when you're making mistakes, when you're going sideways, good parents, they correct their children. So on Sunday, I was sitting with a friend and he was telling me about his nephew who's pretty severely on the spectrum. And when the, the nephew was four years old, he went into the bathroom and to use the restroom, obviously. And then he came back out and went and said, dad, 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 I found something. And he goes, what? And they go into the bathroom and he lifts up the lid and he goes, is that chocolate? And so the dad, as painful as it was, I've never thought I'd have to say this, had to excruciatingly explain, there will never be chocolate there. Anyone who tells you that there's chocolate there is not your friend. No one will ever be nice and put chocolate there. Never believe that is chocolate. If you ever think there's chocolate anywhere, you come and get me and we will investigate it first. Like there's this painful correction that has to happen because I love you and I care for you and I don't want you to make a terrible mistake. Right? Good parents, they correct their kids. Faithful are the wounds of friends. Good friends, they correct their friends. Not to lord over them, not to dominate them, but because of how much we love them, we want to see them do well. Sometimes the correction can be really, really, really hard, but it's always worth doing when we want to see our friends, our spouses, our kids, neighbors do better. Verse 5, especially when it's done out of love. Verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain... He has caused it not to me, 
but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So there's this individual in the church, and he has messed up. So he's been, verse six tells us, punished by the majority. The, the majority of the church has said, this dude has messed up, there must be punishment. And this very well could be the person from 1 Corinthians who was in a really inappropriate relationship with either his mom or his mother-in-law, and we hope it's his mother-in-law. Like, it could be that guy. The church had celebrated him and his relationship previously. Now they have said, if they've obeyed Paul, they've decided to put that person out and, and allow them to be outside of the grace and the hospitality and the kindness and the love of the community of believers so that he would desire to repent and come back in. Um, it might be that person. It might be another person because there's a lot of, of issues that had happened in Corinth. There's a lot of problems in a lot of different areas. And it could have been any person that the majority said, all right, this person for a season has to be put out. And Paul says, okay, maybe it's time to bring them back in. You should forgive that person, bring them back into the fold. Whoever it was, whatever they had done, is this okay for a church to do? To say, hey, you cannot be a part of our group anymore. You cannot come in and sit with the, the fellowship of believers anymore. You can't be a part of what we do. Is that okay for a church to say? Jesus says, absolutely. In fact, Jesus lays out, but it's not a, hey, you know what? I'm really tired of picking up your coffee spills. I'm over it. You can't come back here anymore until you learn better self-control. It's not like that. Here's what, how Jesus lays out. In order for you to get to that spot, here's the progression that you must meet, the phases you have to go through. So Jesus lays it out in Matthew 18, the steps that you, you take. So it's Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So if you're a Christian and someone who also calls themselves a Christian sins against you, you are supposed to go to that person and you're supposed to have a conversation about it with the goal of reconciliation. We're going to figure this out. The first thing you do is not gossip about it or tell someone else or make it a bigger thing. Immediately you go to that other believer and you say, hey, we, we have a problem. I would like to figure it out. Let's have a conversation about it with the goal being forgiveness, repentance, grace, reconciliation. If that does not work, Jesus gives us the second step. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Hey, we can't come to an understanding. So let's go get someone that I view as being very wise, very kind, very 
they love Jesus. They're very discerning. Let's sit down with two or three of these guys and let's share our position because the believer's first thought when we're having an issue should always be like the disciples and say, is it me? Is it I, Lord? Am I the one that's having the problem here? So, okay, if I sit down with a believer and I say, hey, here's, here's the thing, you've really hurt me and you can't, come, you can't come to an agreement. You get people who are wise and discerning that you can sit down with and you'd be able to hear from them, man, I think it actually is your fault or no, you're right. I think this person needs to ask your forgiveness and you need to forgive and so that we can move forward and reconcile and we can figure this thing out. But verse 17, if you do step one, can't work through it. Step two, can't work through it. Verse 17, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And he, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So here's what this means. If you have someone, if you are someone, and you will not repent and reconcile with your believing, if you're with your Christian friend, every church must somehow have a way to say to that unrepentant person, you don't have the right to be here right now because you're claiming to be a Christian. You're claiming to know Jesus, to love Jesus, but you're behaving opposite of the gospel that you profess. You can't do both. But this guy, verse seven, what we see about him in 2 Corinthians is, Paul says, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This guy has apparently repented. He's turned around and he wants to come back in. And Paul is saying, hey, it's time to forgive him and let that guy come back into the fold. But it appears this church doesn't want him back. And there could be a lot of reasons for that. Like they could have gotten together and said, hey, you know, Joe said he's really, really sorry. Yeah. Church has been kind of nice without Joe's kids running around. Church has been kind of nice without his wife going around gossiping. Church has been kind of nice without Joe making it all about himself all the time. Like maybe he's just a really inconvenient person. And everyone in the church is like, man, it's just kind of nice not having him here. I don't know if we want to bring him back in yet. It could be that. There could be members of the church who are still really hurt by whatever this person had done because the majority had said, yeah, you can't be here. So maybe there was property that was damaged. Maybe there was reputation that had been tarnished. Maybe there was money that was still owed. Whatever had happened, there was a big enough problem to where he can't be here. The entire church said, no, it's time to get out. And Paul says, okay, he's repentant. It's time to let him back in. It's time to forgive. By Paul asking that, and we don't know the situation, we don't know the specific circumstances with this individual, but just assume it was super bad, whatever he did. This is a super big deal. The entire church said, yeah, you need to be removed. The majority did. Paul asking him to be brought back in, does that seem like an unreasonable request? Like he could have lost someone a lot of money, really hurt a family and him being brought back in might really hurt them. Does this seem like an unreasonable request on Paul's part? I think it totally is. In fact, it's so unreasonable that Jesus gives us an unreasonable illustration so that you and I can understand it because Jesus is gonna ask us to unreasonably forgive people all of the time. Here's the illustration that Jesus gives. 
It's the same chapter in Matthew 18, which is verse 23. He's, Jesus lays out this perfect illustration, says, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. So here's the scenario that Jesus paints. There is this guy, there is this servant who owes a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money to this king. And this king decides one day, I'm gonna settle all the accounts with my servants. And this servant owes 10,000 talents, which to you and me means nothing, right? Like I figure I'm a pretty talented guy. That's not what he's talking about, all right? It, a denarii in Jesus's day was one day's worth of wages. You worked a whole day, you got one denarii. So the average person makes about 300 denarii in a year, give or take. Okay, so a talent is roughly 6,000 denarii, or it's 20 years of working wages. That's one talent. So 10,000 talents is 200,000 years of working. So it's, it's a couple billion dollars in today's dollars. That is a nuts amount for this person to be in debt. I stress out over a little bit of debt. This is a lot of debt. This is an unreasonable amount. And how, how does even a servant accumulate that much debt. It's not the cook and it's not the cleaner and it's, it's not the babysitter. It's not that kind of servant. I think it's like, this is a vassal king. There's a high king and the king had said, you're going to help me rule over this area. You're going to bring peace to it. You're going to bring hope to it. You're going to bring my kingdom into the subjects here and you're going to be a good steward of it. And whether through incompetence or maliciousness or mismanagement, he lost a whole lot of money. And so now he's meeting with the king. Punishment must be pay paid. And the servant, he begs for forgiveness. The king takes pity upon him and forgives him. And so in this story, you and I are supposed to relate with that person. That's who you and I are in this illustration, in this story. The Bible tells you and me as believers, that those who follow Jesus, we will one day rule and reign with King Jesus in eternity for forever. So today, you and I are kings and queens in training. That's who we are. And you and I are ambassadors of God's kingdom placed into this community to bring hope and life and peace and joy to our neighbors and to our friends and to our spouse and to our family so that they would also want to come and serve King Jesus and, and be a part of his kingdom. That you and I are kings and, kings, kings and queens in training and Jesus is the ultimate high king that one day we are all going to have to give an account to. And you and I have accrued a significant debt against our king. Through every, whether it's through maliciousness or mismanagement, you and I will sin every single day against our king, whether it be sins of omission, not doing the things we know we ought to do, or intentionally hurting other people. We will accrue a giant debt. And just, just consider for a moment the complete record of what that debt would look like for you and me. Don't overlook any thought that you've had. Don't overlook any deed you've done, anything that you said to someone intentionally to harm them, any motive that was wrong or any hidden motive for doing something right. Try to think about if that was on a, on a number of pages, how long that would be. The picture you and I are supposed to get is it is an unreasonable amount. 
It is 10,000 talents. It is unpayable. It is unbearable, the, the debt that we have against our king. But you and I, our high king, took pity upon us, had compassion for us, came and redeemed us, saved us, set us free from that, given us hope and life, and now we don't have to worry about the debt. Someone has to pay for the debt. So if I go to your house and I destroy your raspberries, just, just think about this for a second. I came to your house and I destroy your raspberries. You've got two choices. Your first choice is this. You can demand justice and judgment, and I am going to have to go to the store and buy you raspberries, or you can hold me accountable and I'll have to come plant you more raspberries and attend to them for three years until you can get what's owed to you. Or, so that's the first one. You can demand justice and judgment. The second option is you can forgive and you can go without raspberries, or you could go to the store and buy your own raspberries, or you can go plant new raspberries and tend to them for three years until you can get your raspberries again. But those are the only two choices you have. There's no just forgiveness where it's washed clean because now there's still no raspberries. Today, if you come to my mom's house, there are no raspberries, all right? To this day, I think as a punishment for me, just as a reminder, hey, would you like raspberries? Oh, sorry, there are none. We have blackberries though. No, so forgiveness costs someone something, and the high king took our debt upon himself at high cost to himself. And so here's how the story ends. That's the person you and I are supposed to identify with and be mindful of. This is who I am. I have been forgiven an unreasonable amount. But verse 28, Jesus follows up the story by saying, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So this guy who was just forgiven 60 million denarii, Find someone who owes him 100 denarii. That's not even a percent. It's not even 1% of what he had owed, been forgiven of. Someone owes him 100 denarii. I demand you pay it back. I'm gonna hold you accountable for what you did. Don't we do that so often when we get hurt by people? Have you ever gone to a park and you had someone who drew caricatures? They're the worst. They always find the thing that you're most insecure about and they just make it huge on the paper, right? But that's what they have to do. To draw a really good cartoon, they have to find those features that you and I have and accentuate them, make them bigger, especially if they're imperfections. I have to bring attention to this and draw this out and make this the highlight of who you are. Isn't that exactly what we do when we're hurt by people and we feel like we've been sinned against? Like, oh man, she, really, she just lied to me. I can't, and I'm telling someone about it. Yeah, she just lied to me. Why did she lie about you? Because she's a liar. She's just a liar. Okay, but well, hold on. Last week, were you telling me something where, where you lied to someone? Well, yeah, but the circumstances were different. Well, why did you lie? Are, are you just a liar? 
Well, no, there was a situation and there was, there's, there's outside forces and there's reasons behind what I did, but she's just a liar. We'll do this to people when we get hurt by someone. We'll look at their $100 debt and hold them accountable for it and say, I demand you beg to be forgiven. And even if you beg to be forgiven, I'm still gonna hold on to it because you're just a liar, because you're just an unkind person, because you're just like that. Jesus says, no, you've been forgiven. You need to forgive. The other person, he acknowledges he's wrong. He falls down. He pleads with him. He offers repayment, reconciliation. Hey, we're going to figure it out. I was wrong. But he refuses. He puts the man in prison. He holds him captive. And the king says, that is wicked. That's not what my people do. That's not how my kingdom looks. And so for Paul, who he's writing to this church, who's struggling with this very idea and topic, he says in verse 9, this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in anything, in everything, not anything, everything. Verse 10 says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. We have an enemy who greatly desires that you and I would behave and treat each other like we are debt collectors and not kings. We have an enemy who desires that we would behave like people who are always seeking to get the very last straw, the last word. I've got to be right. You need to know how much you've hurt me, harmed me. You need to know what kind of debt you're into me. We have an enemy whose game is, whose desire is, we should all be debt collectors and not kings. And Jesus says, not so. For the believer, we always go back to the cross. I have been forgiven so much. I've been forgiven an unreasonable amount. And Jesus asked that in obedience to him, I also forgive even when it's really hard for me. And when I refuse to do that, I'm playing Satan's game. And so what does that look like? Who has caused you pain? I'm sure when I say that, there's got to be someone that comes to mind immediately. The Holy Spirit through Paul teaches you and me that when we're hurt, Satan seeks access to you, to us, to your family, to your church family. Satan's game is to get you to be caught up in that and not be the king, the queen that God wants you to be and represent to his world. So is there anyone that you have not fully forgiven from your heart that comes to mind as we talk about this? To defeat and disarm Satan, you have to forgive them as much as you've been forgiven, even if it's an unreasonable amount. That doesn't mean you be unwise. The Bible tells us you be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove, but Jesus is very, very clear here. You forgive. We need to be people of reconciliation, and forgiveness super duper hurts sometimes. For Jesus, forgiveness really, really, really hurt. For this king, forgiveness really hurt. A billion dollars doesn't just go away unless you work at the Pentagon. Sorry. But forgiveness, a billion dollars doesn't just go away. It's not just, oh, you know, it's, it's really not a big deal. It's 200,000 years of someone's work. It's fine. No, that really, really, that is a toll. That's something to just bear. Forgiveness costs something, and it's always going to cost to forgive them. And we're supposed to look at what it costs Jesus and say, okay, I can forgive. And so look at Paul in verse 10. This is the example Paul gives. In verse 10, Paul says, 
Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, it's writing. Let me think of an example. Who have I forgiven? There's so many people there. Okay. If I've forgiven anyone anything, like it almost seems like a momentary lapse of absent-mindedness. Like, okay, I've forgiven. Uh, if I've forgiven anything, it's been for your sake in the presence of Christ. This isn't a momentary lapse for Paul. It's he's showing the standard. He's showing how you and I and all, all past believers, and all future believers are supposed to behave. We forgive and we forget. I'm gonna believe the very best about you. You came and you asked for forgiveness and you brought repentance. Okay, we can move forward. I will forgive you. I'm gonna forget about what you've done to me just like Jesus has forgiven me and it's no longer held against me. He doesn't have that debt hidden away somewhere to bring up when I upset him. It is gone. As, as, as it couldn't be more gone than the East is from the West. It is removed from me entirely. In verse 12, Paul shifts gears. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So then Paul brings us to really a present issue for him. He had an opportunity to preach the gospel. The door was open. This is what he's made for. This is what Jesus visited him for, to make him an apostle, to go spread the gospel. This is your job, your task here on earth. You go and you preach. There's a door open for you, but he can't find his friend Titus. His friend Titus was supposed to be there, and he's incredibly anxious about it. So much so that he leaves and he heads over to Macedonia. He's so distressed. He's so worried. He's so worked up about his friend. And verse 14, this is how he starts the next thought. But thanks be to God. In the middle of this really anxiety-inducing situation, things are, are really hard. There was a friend that was supposed to meet him. He's not here. The worst could have happened. You, you know how your brain can just do that? It starts to unravel and you start to think the very worst thing could have happened. And I wonder if this happened and I wonder if he got arrested and I wonder, and it just starts to, you go to the worst spots. In the middle of that, Paul chooses to begin praising God. Starts to offer up thanksgiving because Paul believes that even in the most difficult situations, God can use even those darkest, most hopeless, deep, dark situations to reveal his power and his presence. And for you and me, it's that same thing. There could be so many times you and I are in hopeless spots. We just feel anxious and depressed and worried about different individuals. The way to handle that, the right way to move forward is to start going, okay, God, I bet you even right now you can reveal your presence and your power even in this really tough, anxious, hard time. And then Paul continues by saying, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance, the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So Paul ends 
this chapter, this thought with a really vivid picture that for everyone in Rome at the time would be super familiar with. Everyone in Corinth would be super familiar with. And it's this phrase, triumphal procession. That picture is this. Whenever there was a war or a battle and the generals and the armies would be coming home, the victorious general would lead a triumphal procession through the town. There would be celebrating, there would be loud noise, there would be praise and celebration, and he would lead his way through the town, and everyone would tell him how awesome he did. Everyone who was on the side of that general knew there is life, there is hope, this is great, we've won, there's been victory. And then he would trail alongside him the prisoners of war, all the people who had been captive, the, the enemy king, the enemy general, the one who was in opposition to the kingdom. And they would be brought in either to be killed in one way or killed in another way or put on display, whatever. But they were brought in. And for them, those who oppose the kingdom, it's death. This is the worst it could ever, ever be. And, Jesus, and Paul is saying here, Jesus, he leads us. It's actually interesting. He says, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. That you and I have to have a mind of Jesus has been victorious over the greatest enemies, over sin and death. That now, that's why we gather and that's why we sing praise and that's why we celebrate because our mind has to go back to Jesus has been victorious, but it's not just this one-time thing that we celebrate and we move on and we forget. Jesus is always leading us in that triumphal procession, always. We have to be always mindful of my God is one. My God is victorious. My God has forgiven me, and now no one holds a debt against me. Nothing can ever pull me out of his hand, not life, nor death, nor the enemy, nor, nothing could ever remove me from the position that has been given to me in Jesus. I'm always being led in this triumphal procession. And for those who know King Jesus, it's life to life. When you have someone who is daily excited about their salvation in Jesus, just has the joy of their salvation, just the words that they speak coming out of them, it is life to life. It's life giving to the person who knows Jesus and it's life giving to the people who don't know Jesus who want him to ultimately become their king because of the conversations they're constantly having. But for those who oppose Jesus, it's death to death. It's, it's a painful conversation. It's difficult. It's frustrating to hear Christians talk for the people who are not believers because it's just so irritating. It's nonsense. It doesn't make sense. It's death to death. For you and me, we're supposed to remember Jesus has been victorious over sin and death, and he is always leading us in triumphal procession. And the last verse tells us that for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. As men, of, as men of sincerity, we have reason to forgive and a necessity to reconcile that's been put, tasked with us by Christ Jesus. He is king. We are kings and queens in training. and We're not debt collectors. So Jesus, I pray that as we go throughout our week, that if someone has come to mind that we've not forgiven, Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength to forgive. I pray that you would help us to be wise and discerning and not allow ourselves to be taken advantage of, but we would also not be debt collectors holding people responsible for things that could be fully forgiven in you. 
Jesus, help us to be people of self-control that when a brother sins against us, that we'd be able to go and speak to them directly about it without gossiping, without slandering them, without wearing them down, beating them up. And I pray that you would help us grow into be a people of just reconciliation and hope and grace and mercy as we go throughout our week to our family, our spouses, our neighbors, even our enemies. It's in the name of King Jesus we pray, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.